welcome back to part two of Tour Guide Tell All's Constitution Day episode. In honor of Constitution Day, today, September 17th, Rebecca and Becca are discussing in depth the United States Constitution. We released part one on Monday because there's so much to say about this document. So before you listen to this episode, if you haven't already, go listen to our Constitution Day episode part one, the mini episode that was released on Monday. And now, on with the show. convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Today we call it the Constitutional Convention. That's not what they called it because they didn't know that they were going to write a constitution per se. They called it the Philadelphia Convention, the Federal Convention, or the Grand Convention, which I love, the Grand Convention. So they decide to have this convention. The cover story, as it were, or the talking point is that we're going to revise the Articles of Confederation. So this is how they're recruiting delegates to this this convention. We're going to revise the Articles of Confederation. But that is not the intent of several of the people who are attending. No. (laughs) This is really where we see the true birth of the Federalists and the Federalist ideology. So you have people like Alexander Hamilton, for example, who's exceptionally Federalist to the point of essentially perhaps wanting to put a monarch in place again. But you have people like James Madison, George Mason, George Washington, people who are saying we need some sort of central federal government. That's not what they're going to go in saying. They're going to go in saying, let's, let's just revise what we have. And then when we get there, we're going we're gonna to put our ideas forward. And it's also interesting to me that sort of narrative we have is that, you know, the founders come together and like produce this document that saves us from the Articles of Confederation, which is not quite right. They exceed their congressional mandate. The Congress does give them the power to create a document, but they kind of exceed it. And second of all, is a democracy a democracy that has to be created in secret? We're getting into some big questions here. No, no, I love it. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, you bring up a really good point. And just for context for listeners, so what you should know is that each state will send delegates, except for Rhode Island, who refuses. Rhode Island, throughout this episode, will just be a special little snowflake. Okay, guys, I come from Connecticut, which is next to Rhode Island. Rhode Island has always been a special snowflake, and it continues to be a special little snowflake. That's all I'm going to say. So the states will choose delegates. Only 55 of the 70-some-odd delegates will ever show up. So of the people chosen, only two-thirds deign to arrive. Most of them don't come till June or July. This started in May. So the prime work is being done by the eager beavers, mostly from Virginia and Pennsylvania, who show up early and they have the biggest delegations. And so when we think about the framers and this convention, we think about 50 or 60 men in a room, not really. And people did not attend every session. People came and went as they needed. So you have a much smaller group, I think, than we often think of working on this. It is, as you said, very much the privileged class. These are, you know, mostly 
well-to-do white property owners. There are a few who are not. Roger Sherman, I think, is a great example of that. But mostly, right, this is the cream of the crop of the country. These are men who fought in the revolution or had already served in Congress, were in their state and local governments. These were definitely men who were part of the system and looking to, like you said, sort of enshrine a lot of these privileges. Jefferson described them that it was an assembly of demigods, which can sound good or also sound like a criticism a little bit, <laughs> an assembly of demigods. But it is an interesting mix of people. I do want to mention they're all dudes, so it's completely all men. They're all white men. So the difference is not like the diversity is between the guys who own property and are kind of wealthy and the people who own less property and are less wealthy. So this isn't like a great diverse coalition of beings that is descending on Philadelphia. These are all the privileged class. They're all men. They are all, in a lot of cases, they know each other and are related to each other by marriage or blood. This is the sort of governing class that's going to meet. And they do meet in secret. They meet in it's still the room is still there you can go see it in philadelphia it's an independence hall it is the same exact room where they debate the declaration of independence which i just love i love that these two things happen in the same room and they're going to close all the windows and the doors no one can see what's happening there's no no news to the press right nothing it's like a total news blackout and it's hot because it's the summertime and ironically enough they chose what many people were called as the hottest summer on record in Philadelphia. So they are sweating because they're all dressed very nicely, you know, and there's no air flow at all. This is probably why half of them don't show up every day. It's too hot. I tell ya, like the constitution is soaked in sweat. Like it just, ugh, it must have been, ugh. And they don't like everybody shows up every day and they all have these spirited debates. People are coming and going at any one time. There's n probably not too many times when all 55 of the delegates were in the same place at the same time. I will mention, and this is my, you know, my thing, I, I bring this up a lot on Twitter, but the age of the delegates and the framers fascinates me because the average age is 42. Of course, life expectancy in this time is not nearly what it is today, but we have this picture of old men, and there were older men. Ben Franklin is the oldest at 81. He doesn't walk at this point. He's being carried in and out in the chair, you know, which is how I'd like to move around, just have people carrying me in the little sedan chair. But the average age is 42. The youngest framer is 26, Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey. James Madison's 36 at this point. George Mason is in his 40s. These are young men, men who've been very involved in, in this country for the last decade, but many of them are young. And I think that's important too. These are men who recognize that this is a chance, this is an opportunity to shape this country going forward. And so many of them come in like you said, it's not a diversity of background per se or ethnicity or gender, but they do have diverse, they come in with diverse ideologies and all having come in with a different idea of what this country should be. It's not too surprising that considering all of these sort of factions and different ideas that the person who is elected to be president of this convention is George Washington. He is seen as about the closest thing we have to an impartial person in the political spectrum. Now, certainly he knows what he wants, which is we need something to stabilize our government and move us forward. He supports a centralized federal government, but he's considered fair and impartial or as close as you're going to get. Right. He's the only one everybody trusts. 
you know, and that's why he's asked to participate because everyone knows from the North to the South, he's respected. And at this point, Washington has served his country. He wants to go home. Like the one theme of Washington's life is that I'd rather be on my farm at Mount Vernon. And so he's finally done with the war. He wants to be home, but he gets written to from many different quarters around the country saying, look at, if we're going to do this thing, you have to participate. It won't have any legitimacy in the eyes of not only us, but the rest of the country if you don't participate. And so Washington says, all right, let's do it. And he gets up and he goes back to Philadelphia to preside over this. I'll mention as we move forward that most of what we know about what happened at the Constitutional Convention comes after the fact. Several people who attended would write their remembrances later, sometimes decades later. Some people kept notes. The best set of notes about the Constitutional Convention come from James Madison, and a lot of what we'll reference comes from Madison's notes. That said, he doesn't publish them till after his death, or I should say he doesn't allow for them to be published till after his death. So there's an understanding. I think it can sound sinister when we say they did this in secret. One of the reasons that they believe some secrecy is important is that there are political forces and there is this idea that if we're going to make compromises, if we're going to have difficult decisions, we have to be able to do that without every little thing we say having to then be answered or dissected in our home states or our press or whatever. So I think there's arguments to be made for making why that could have been a public process, but I also can understand why. And I can understand why Madison said, people don't need to know what happened in that room until after the fact, until later. Because we are, we're so young and so fragile. And no one has ever done anything like this before. So we're trying to create a government where none exists before, really. We're trying to do something very new. Secrecy is, in a way, you can make the argument that it's almost essential. We need to figure out what we're doing before we can present it to the world so that we can then just, as one voice, rather than emphasize the dissenting voices, we can present our plan as one voice to the world. And so I can see their point. I can see where they come up with that. So as this uh, convention kicks off in May of 1787, we essentially have four plans that'll be presented, really two serious plans, but four that we'll touch on. And the most important, the most significant is the Virginia plan written by James Madison. Again, Madison is 36 at this point. He has studied deeply before coming to this convention. He has read everything he can read about the past, about the present, what was happening in ancient Greece, what was happening in Rome, what contemporary European societies were doing at this point. He has looked at it from a philosophical perspective, a theological perspective, a legal perspective, and he has put together what he thinks is the best plan going forward. And it's a pretty good one because it's close to what we have today. Uh, what Madison creates is the blueprint. And that's why he's called the father of the Constitution. He hated that. He rejected that title in his lifetime. But he puts in the work. And he shows up early, which I love. I love, I love people who are early. He shows up early and he works on getting people on his side. And like we said uh, before, many of the delegates weren't there in May. It was Virginia, Pennsylvania, all the delegates that lived kind of close were there. And he's lobbying 
He's going to everybody and saying, I want you to understand why I wrote this so that this makes sense. And just before the convention, he had written Vices of the Political System of the United States in April of that year. And I love it because it's basically just a list of everything the country's doing wrong and everything we need to move forward. So he's already laid the groundwork for his plan by being like, here's all the problems. And look, I have a plan to fix it. Madison really does the work. He's so fascinating to me. Madison gets his heart broken as a young man. His fiance runs off with another woman or another man, sorry. And uh, he takes that decade and spends all of his time reading, which is like goals. And he reads about government, how to, because he knows in the midst of the revolution. And the other thing that should be said about Madison, he's younger than Jefferson. He's over a decade younger. And so he comes of age in the midst of the revolution. And so that's going to kind of inform his thinking. He wants stability. He has a more conservative strain than Jefferson does. He worries about minority rights. That's something that's going to weave its way all the way through the constitution. He's very worried about the tyranny of the majority over the minority. And so he's going to do the work during the American revolution to get ready, knowing that we're going to have to form some kind of government afterward. And so he can show up on day one and be like at the head of the class. And he really does put in a lot of effort for this. And he's interesting because he is landed Virginia Gentry. He's a slave owner. And yet you can't lump him in with when we talk about the South, quote unquote, during the Constitutional Convention, he is not out there saying the states should be able to do whatever they want. He's really in favor of a very strong central government. He wants Congress to have taxation authority, and he believes in taxation really strongly. He thinks that foreign and interstate commerce needs to be regulated, and he wants to make sure that there's a way to enforce federal supremacy. So he's got some ideas that, considering his background, are very unusual, but it comes from all of that research and all that reading and saying, look, I don't just want a government that's going to last my lifetime. I want something that is sustainable, that will make us a country for the ages, make us a nation for the ages. So he comes in with this plan. He gets on board another Virginian, Edmund Randolph, who's 33. He's the governor of Virginia. Randolph's going to be another really important figure in this convention. He gets other Virginians and Pennsylvanians on his side. uh, And he's like, here's my plan. And his biggest I think problem with his initial plan is there's no checks and balances, really, yet. We don't have the sort of checks and balances we come to see. And the other problem is it's such a radical departure from the Articles of Confederation that getting the buy-in of smaller states, getting the buy-in of southern states is going to be hard. The other sort of plan that comes forward as a counter to the Virginia plan is the New Jersey plan introduced by William Patterson. And these are basically a coalition of mid-Atlantic to Eastern states that are like, look, all we really want to do is we just want to revise the Articles of Confederation. We are not interested in like a full reforming of our government. We just want to make some changes. And so they want to keep Congress unicameral with each state just having one vote. So it's basically the let's get everybody in a room and anybody can veto. So keeping that form of government that's not working. They want to create the New Jersey plan wants a federal executive group. So instead of like a president, you would have had like a board of directors. And these members would serve a single term and they could be removed by Congress if there was a majority vote of state governors. So you'd basically have the states deciding who would serve in this federal executive group. They basically wanted the states to keep all the power with the exception of taxation. 
And that's kind of it. That's their plan is let's just put a Congress together to tax everybody, but we're going to leave everything else in the hands of the states. And the delegates vote on this in June and it's defeated. And when this happens, when the New Jersey plan is defeated, it gives the Virginia plan more support, but it doesn't get the buy-in it needs. So they're sort of saying, okay, we don't want to, we don't like the idea of just keeping the Articles of Confederation, but we're not sold on Madison's plan because there's still a lot of debate about representation. How is it going to be determined? Are we going to be unicameral or bicameral? How are we going to balance this government? How do we keep one area of this government from running amok or wild with power? And so there's still, even though the New Jersey plan falls away, there's still a lot of question about, is the Virginia plan feasible? All right, so let's break this down a little bit here. How we're going to do this legislatively. Unicameral means there'd be only one house of Congress. So bicameral is what we ended up with. We have the Senate and the House bicameral. And there's a big debate about how are we going to do representation. The smaller states want to be equal with the larger states. They're worried that because they have less population that they're going to get, their interests are going to get shoved to the side. So they want every state to have the same number of legislators. Whatever that number is agreed to be, they want Delaware to have the same number as Virginia, which is the most populous state back then. The bigger states, for obvious reasons, don't think that that's quite fair. They've got more people. They have more needs to consider. It is not unreasonable to assume that a greater number of people would have a diversity of issues that need addressing. Plus more property, more economic power and wealth. Right, exactly. And so their idea is that representation should be apportioned by population, which means the certain number of people, whatever number we decide on, gets a single legislature. So we're broken out into districts around the state or around the country. And that is going to benefit the bigger states at the expense of the smaller states. And so you go back and forth about this, how basically to balance these competing interests. You also have at the same time, Southern states, a lot of their reliance is going to be on enslaved persons. How do we balance that in? How do we shove the needs of the Southern states into the constitution as well? So they're going to kind of go back and forth about this. So that's going to be sort of the key issue. There are two other plans that are brought forward before this convention, neither of which have a ton of juice. One is the South Carolina plan from Charles Pickney. It's similar to the Virginia plan, but it's got a lot of other elements to it. It certainly favors Southern uh, landowners and those uh, uh, benefits from the large enslaved population. And so it's sort of a non-starter for any state not in the South. But a couple of the ideas that Pickney has are going to be added to the Virginia plan. Having a bicameral legislature, having checks and balances, and having a national judiciary, which had been something that Madison had noted but not really outlined. And then finally, I have to mention Alexander Hamilton, just because if you have listened to or watched Hamilton, you know, he goes and proposes his own form of government and he talks for six hours. That's from Madison's notes. And his whole form of government is very different from what anyone else is talking about because he's basically like, let's just have the British government, but our version. He basically wants something that is a little, I think, elitist, a little classist. He wants to have these electors that would choose members of the Senate. These senators would serve for life. And then they would also then choose a single executive who would serve for life and have total veto control. 
So it would really put the power into the hands of a handful of small people who would be chosen by a handful of small people, which is very different. Uh, he also then, to add insult to injury, wants to abolish states, essentially. So this is a plan that nobody likes except for Alexander Hamilton, because the people who want to keep the power in the states are not happy, and the people who want a federal government are not happy. And so his plan is not even debated. But I feel like we have to note that he goes out there on a limb and is like, what about this? Yeah. And they're like, um, thanks, but no thanks. He will get angry, shockingly, later in his life because of the way that people describe his plan, which he swears he's not a monarchist, that this was just what he thinks is the best way. But it's certainly elitist. It feels like a lack of an imagination, honestly, Hamilton's plan. Like He did not do the homework the way Madison had. So as we get to July of 1787, everybody sort of agrees that Madison's Virginia plan, with some adjustments and changes, is the best plan going forward, but we do not know how to apportion representation and how do we balance power between the branches of this government. And the fight over representation is truly at a stalemate as we get to July. Nobody's willing to give an inch, nobody's willing to compromise, except for one little beautiful state, a really lovely addition to our country, the state of Connecticut. Connecticut helps to save the day. This is our shining moment. Connecticut swoops in to save the day. The Connecticut compromise. The whole government is based on it. This is it. This is our like one shining moment in Connecticut. Do you have like, you should have like a Connecticut compromise day where you celebrate. We really should. This and like UConn basketball. This is what we got. This is the nutmeg state for you. The Connecticut compromise is our government. It says that the House is going to be proportional representation and the Senate will have equal representation. So everybody wins. And the idea is uh, you have one branch that represents the individual people and one branch protecting the sovereignty of the states so that everyone's per- protected. You get minority rule can have its day. You also have the House of Representatives is designed so that it's flexible and nimble. You have small, relatively small districts which have one representative. So you can have somebody who's close to the constituents. And then you have the Senate, which the idea is you have two senators from every state that are supposed to bring a more state perspective. So making sure that the smaller states like Delaware can pull their weight with the Virginias of the world, that their needs are not getting shoved off to the side. And so that's the genesis of the Connecticut Compromise. Now, to clarify too, their intention is that this would be based on the number of free people living in the state because Connecticut is not a slave-owning state, and so they figure that free citizens is who should be included when determining population. There's still so much debate, though, about this that they basically create a subcommittee, one of many, many committees that exist during this convention, and the grand committee has one delegate from each state, and they basically are tasked with determining whether they accept the Connecticut Compromise. And they will accept it with one little revision that comes from Ben Franklin, the Origination Clause. Basically, the Origination Clause gives the House power to originate bills concerning money and salaries. And that's a really important power. Ben Franklin basically says the House, which will have its representation based on population, will control the purse strings. So this really, for a lot of people who are on the fence, this helps get them on board because there's an understanding that the people will have the say over where the money goes. Right. 
the idea is that since the House of Representatives, they're going to be reelected every two years, if something bad happens or you don't like your representative, you only have to put up with them for two years tops and you can vote them out. And so that way the House can be more responsive to the day-to-day -day needs of the people, whereas the senators are going to have a six-year term. So you elect a senator, man, they're there for a while. And so that's the idea behind the House. It's supposed to be a little bit more accountable to the common people. have the Connecticut Compromise. We now have decided this is how we're going to do it. But the definition of how we figure out what a population of a state is continues to be a sticking point. And various people will suggest various methods for calculating population. But every time they do it, and they do it based on number of free men, number of property owners, estimated wealth of the state, all kinds of different things. But every time the North has way more representatives and Southern states don't like it. So on July 9th, we will come to one of the most controversial and I think complicated pieces of the Constitution, and that's the three-fifths compromise. I would also say odious. Odious clauses would be a good way to put it. Um, women are not taken into consideration in any way in this. Uh, we're not going to have the vote. That's pretty much obvious. We are not going to be counted amongst the people who are, we're going to be counted as far as representation because the more people, the better, but we are not going to have the vote in any way. The three-fifths clause though, deep breaths, everyone. The three-fifths clause, the South has a smaller population overall relative to the North but it is even a smaller population of free persons. The South has... At this point, about 40% of the South's population is enslaved people. So the South has about 40% of their population that are enslaved African-Americans who are not going to get the vote. No one debates that. But should they be counted towards their total population? And the North says, nope, that's ridiculous. You're not going to allow them to vote. Why should they be counted? The South says, yeah, but we got all these people. And we're going to have more. They're going to keep, we're going to keep adding. And then we're, we're going to have more. And this is really like, the South is threatening at this point to walk. They're like, you know what? We do not want to join this government that is going to permanently make us second class in terms of our needs are not going to be represented. So we need to figure this out. And the North is like, we don't want them to walk away from the negotiating table. And so eventually what they're going to come up with is that representation is going to be based on free inhabitants and three-fifths of the enslaved population. So a slave counts as three-fifths of a free person. And that's how the South is going to count their population. And it's, it's so frustrating. It's clear that at this point, there's no way for them to get this constitution done by addressing the institution of slavery. And so they're doing everything they can to skate around it, even those that are opposed to slavery and enslavement. And here we come to an opportunity to maybe at least define in the eyes of the constitution, enslaved people as citizens or as full people, and they come up with this compromise. And I, I have to mention Judge James Wilson of Pennsylvania, uh, who is a really important member of this Constitutional Convention. If you have seen the movie slash musical 1776, Judge Wilson is misrepresented a bit, I think, when it comes to the declaration fight, but he's a really strong advocate for the Constitution. And he is absolutely 
incensed by the way the South is handling this. And he says, are slaves to be admitted as citizens? Then why are they not admitted on an equal basis with white citizens? Are they admitted as property? Then why is no other property admitted into computation? He really speaks out against what the South is trying to do, which is to have the best of both worlds, have these people classified by the Constitution essentially as property, while also benefiting from these bodies that they have in bondage for the purposes of representation. And it's, it's a frustrating, complicated, complex compromise that is made, but it's likely the only way forward because we, the South would have walked. It is the only way forward. The South would have walked, and it's basically what the South is doing is they are cloaking themselves with democracy to defend their own sort of anti-democratic actions. And you can so easily see the seeds of the Civil War, which are planted right in this clause in the Constitution. And there's a writer who said that this clause in the Constitution is basically a love letter to Lincoln, like, hi, (laughs) you're going to have to sort this out, dude. So they basically are kicking the can down the road. And so in order to get the South to buy in, the theory being, if the South buys into this convention, we can fix these problems later on. Luckily, or at least I think thinking ahead a little bit, Edmund Randolph sort of swoops back in the next day and says, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to have a regular census. And this census is going to allow us to reallocate and reapportion representation as population changes. And Randolph is wise in this regard to know that there were states at this time saying, well, we have the biggest population. Well, you might not always have the biggest population. And you're saying you're growing. Well, you might not grow. So the census is instituted at this time as a way to really say bigger states may change and smaller states may grow, bigger states may shrink, and we're going to reevaluate and reallocate essentially every 10 years. Representation is one of the biggest issues, but it's not the only place where there are debates. And you could, we could really spend another hour talking about all the different points of conflict, but a couple of places where there are sort of debates. One is the presidency. Many delegates support the idea that Congress would just select a chief executive, that the people elect Congress, so why not just have Congress pick whoever the executive is going to be? Nobody supports the direct election of a chief executive which is sort of fascinating. And my, my man, Judge Wilson, comes up with a compromise, which today is something we still very much debate. But certainly when you think about the options then were having Congress choose a chief executive or having a panel of chief executives or having some sort of board of directors of the United States, this sort of seems like the best way to go. Wilson is going to propose the Electoral College. Wilson spends a lot of time during this convention shaping the idea of the presidency. He is inspired by the Scottish Enlightenment. He's inspired by the concept of civic virtue. His belief is that the people in their wisdom will have electors that will choose a president who will be energetic, independent, and accountable, which is very idealistic and sweet in its idealism. He is really optimistic that this president will be the symbolic leader of all people. He does not foresee or imagine partisan politics or rivalries. And he sort of believes that any class conflict that exists will be resolved by having this unifying figure of a president, which is very sweet of him to think that. It is. (laughs) So... They come up with the Electoral College. The Electoral College has its roots in sort of medieval English law. It goes way back. 
and we're not going to get into that. But the idea about the Electoral College, and here's the central tension to the Constitution. They want democracy, but they want to avoid democracy at the same time. So we want to have democracy kind of democracy light. And that's sort of what the Electoral College is meant to forestall democracy. The other thing that's worth mentioning is we're going to have this chief executive. Everybody in the room knows who the first chief executive is going to be. What? There's no debate. It is obviously going to be George Washington. He's going to run on a post, and he does, the first time anyway. And even if the Congress was going to be tasked with choosing the chief executive, they were going to choose him. Right. They were <laughs> going to choose him. He's the, the man. And so the Congress figures that moving forward, we're going to have a bunch of different people competing to be the chief executive and that there won't be the need for this electoral college because what's going to happen, and this says this in the constitution, if no one gets a clear electoral college majority, it goes to the house of representatives. And so Congress figures the electoral college will use this, this one time, and then it'll basically burn itself out and become obsolete because we'll have a bunch of different people competing. Most of the time, a presidential election will go to the House of Representatives and the House will be empowered to choose the chief executive. Nine times out of 10 is what they thought it was going to be. How often it would go before Congress. Right. So they figure, and this is, again, another way to forestall democracy. So they figure the Electoral College will not be a thing. It's going to sort of burn itself out. And the House of Representatives is going to make the decision sort of in a proto-parliamentarian idea. Because that's how they do it in Parliament in Britain, different today than it was then. Let's not get into it. But the idea is that the House of Representatives will choose our chief executive from a bunch of qualified candidates. And that's not at all how it's worked out. So we're still stuck with this thing. I think it's important to note, though, you know, there's a lot of debate and talk about the Electoral College today. And in 1787, this is Wilson's best compromise, right, between direct election, which nobody supports, and having Congress just cherry pick somebody. And it, so it's, it is a compromise. But even then, there are plenty of framers who don't think the Electoral College is a good idea or an idea that's sustainable or long term. So I think it's important to note that. The other area where there's some debate is the judiciary. There's sort of an agreement that there should be some sort of federal judiciary, something to enforce federal law and to oversee the legal supremacy and sovereignty of the federal government. Government. But again, they want a lot of the power to lie in the legislature, and they just think that the Senate should choose who is on the Supreme Court. A handful of delegates think the president should just get to choose whoever he wants and put them on the court, and it's Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts who says, why not both? Why not have a process that goes through both branches? Why not have a president select justices and have the Senate give its consent and advise and weigh in? And that's a really smart thing to do. It is. But here's my thing about this. So the Constitution states the president will select justices for the Supreme Court and then the Senate will advise and consent. Now, what does advise and consent mean? It is not clear. Does it just mean like they shake hands and say, oh, OK, here, go to the Supreme Court? Does it mean as we have a they vote? Does it mean that they like interrogate candidates like a job interview? Do they submit a list of candidates to the president for the president's selection. It's not at all clear. They just kind of say, oh, okay, advice and consent. Like, what does that mean? Well, what, this is what we've interpreted it to mean. That isn't necessarily what they meant or the only interpretation of it. And I'm sort of glad we're veering into interpretation and intent because at this point, as we're getting towards the end of the summer, 
Congress is sort of done. They're done debating. They're done talking about it. They're ready for a draft. And so, again, the drafting of this first version is done in secret, but a few documents revealed tell us that it's basically Madison's plan with some modifications, as we've discussed. As they're drafting the Constitution, the kind of guiding principle is that it should only deal with the essentials. As much as possible, it should not get into specifics, which is a good thing in many ways and a difficult thing in many ways because it leaves a lot open to interpretation and a lot of debate into intention. But they were told to be as simple as possible, as clear as possible, use precise language when needed, but only in the essentials. So it's a fascinating document because there are things that are very specific and a lot of things that are very not. And this committee is charged to do this draft, and the people chosen for this committee are told to just do what you need to do to get this thing written. And so they take liberties with what has been discussed for three or four months, and they're going to put in kinds of things about topics that never had really even been addressed. And they do that. And then they say, you know, there was a bunch of stuff that we kind of talked about, but we never resolved. So they create one of their many, many committees called the Committee of Postponed Parts, which is the best committee name I've ever heard. And they basically choose all the people who are moderate and willing to compromise. And they're like, hey, guys, we need you to look over this draft and take care of anything we didn't really talk about and figure it out. So they go through this and they're like, oh, we got to deal with slavery. We got to deal with paper currency. We have to deal with qualifications to hold office. We need to decide. We didn't really decide and debate about the Electoral College. We need to figure that out. And that's basically what they do. They go over every issue that had ever been postponed in debate. And they make some big changes. They change the presidential term. It had been proposed for seven years single term. They change it to four years with the possibility of being reelected. This is a big change. It allows for reelection. They figured if there was impeachment that you could, you know, if there was a problem, you could remove somebody. They move impeachment into the Senate before impeachment trials were going to go before a court system. They decide that that should go to the Senate. They create the office of vice president that didn't exist at any point until this. They basically put into the Constitution the Electoral College, and they move a lot of powers from the legislature to the executive. We see the office of the presidency get its constitutional powers through the Committee of Postponed Parts. Things like ambassadors, treaties, all of that was originally going to be a power of the legislative branch. So they make a lot of changes and Congress is ready. They're just ready to be done with this or this, you know, this convention is ready to be done with this. But at this point, it's been several months and there are some people who are starting to get unruly. I think of them as the opposition trio, Elbridge Gary, Edmund Randolph and George Mason, who we did a separate podcast on George Mason. And if you haven't listened, you'll have to go back and listen to it after this. They're concerned with the direction of this constitution. They're concerned primarily with the lack of protection for individual rights and freedoms and liberties. And they are concerned that there is not a good process for amending the constitution, for making changes moving forward. They have other complaints, but those are sort of the key ones. And it's George Mason who really is pushing immediately for a Bill of Rights to be added. He had written Virginia's Declaration of Rights, and he knew the importance of enshrining into law these rights to protect the individual. 
the convention is like, no, we're too tired. Forget it. We just want to be done. And these three men will ultimately refuse to sign the Constitution and work to argue against its ratification. Yeah, they walk out. They like stage walk out. They're like, we're, this is important enough. We are going to die on this hill. And they say, if you're not going to include these, we can't in good conscience sign the Constitution. And Washington himself sits down with George Mason and is like, dude, just sign it. I mean, come on, let's get out of here. Let's go home. And Mason digs in his heels and refuses to do it. And eventually it is not done. They don't add the, what we call the Bill of Rights. They, it's not actually an original part of the Constitution. Yes, as we get to September 17th, Constitution Day, what we have is a document that is in some ways unfinished. We have not addressed a Bill of Rights. We have not addressed these individual rights and liberties. You have people who are just over it. Nobody wants to work on this any longer. And they're like, just draft it so we can sign it. So Governor Morris is credited with being the draftsman of the document, actually writing out the official copy. And he is the man who writes our beautiful preamble, which I will not sing Schoolhouse Rock to you all, but that is how I remember the preamble to the Constitution. So he gives us this beautiful introduction to this document. 39 delegates sign it. So we had 74 delegates appointed, 55 who showed up, and only 39 ever sign it because people have left at this point. And of course, we have our trio who refused to sign. Washington will sign it first in a beautiful kind of act of symbolism. It's clear that he's going to be the first chief executive. So having him put his name on this document first really shows a commitment to putting this government in place and making this a reality. There is some overlap. I like to mention overlap between the Declaration and the Constitution. Six men will sign both documents. Uh, and there will be two men who sign through all three, the Declaration of the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation. Roger Sherman, who, did you talk about Sherman in the Declaration episode? Uh, a little bit. Um, a little bit. We'll have to do a whole Sherman episode. He's fascinating. And then old Robert Morris. Those are the two. And, you know, people people in September 17th, they know that this isn't perfect. They know that there's lots of work to be done. But Ben Franklin, I think, addresses that. He says, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure I shall never approve them. I doubt, too, whether any other convention we can obtain may be able to make a better Constitution. At some point, there's a recognizing, I think, of human flaw and foible and prejudice and bias. And as much as they're trying to do this out of the vacuum of partisan politics, there is political action at play. And this is kind of the best they can come up with. And it's pretty darn good in its, in its structure. It's got good things about it. But it has to be ratified. They write this constitution, and it's not an easy battle immediately. The immediate backlash is anti-federal. There are immediately people who say, absolutely not. They're turning this into a monarchy. We want to be our own individual states. And the letters and the pamphlets come fast and furious. And there are framers who leave this convention, go back to their states and say, nah, I don't think we should ratify. Or I have a lot of changes and we should only ratify it if these changes come. So James Madison gets to work. 
And he is going to team up with John Jay and Hamilton, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and they will write the Federalist Papers, series of anonymous articles and essays, 85 in total. The first one is published in October. So these come pretty close to after when the document is signed. If you have seen Hamilton, you know, Hamilton writes 51, uh, the other 51. He writes a bulk of these. They are fascinating. They give a lot of insight into intention when we think about the Constitution, because again, a lot of this was happening in secret, but these essays show us the thought process behind some of what's in the Constitution, and they come out very quickly. They publish sometimes three or four of these a week, and the idea is just to overwhelm the opposition, that if they're just constantly putting forward their ideas, that eventually people will be like, all right, well, I guess you guys have thought about this. Let's just ratify the thing. They really just want to get it done and they publish them anonymously. If you haven't read the Federalist Papers, they actually are fascinating and they're all the justification for why we're doing this, what we think is going to happen, how we have set this government up and having faith in the future of what we have come up with. Exactly. And I, yeah, I certainly will, we'll link them in the show notes, but you should check out the Federalist Papers if you have not. James Wilson, Judge Wilson also does a lot of advocacy for ratification. He is going to give a speech in the courtyard behind Independence Hall. It's referred to today as the State House Yard speech because he gives it out in the yard. This speech is so good. It's so persuasive. It's so powerful. George Washington gets a copy of it and he's like, I need this. And he asks, for multiple copies. And that's what Washington uses to persuade people to support the document. Washington will go around and say, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Judge Wilson lays it out. And he uses Wilson's speech as his primary advocacy document, which I think is a pretty, pretty cool thing to have. Be like, oh, Washington likes my speech. Oh, well. The other sort of sticky wicket here is the Bill of Rights. Many framers signed the Constitution under the impression that a Bill of Rights is coming, and many are supporting ratification with that impression. But there is opposition to that. Alexander Hamilton, for example, is hesitant to enumerate rights and freedoms with the fear that those will then become the only rights and freedoms that are enshrined. So there's also among this ratification debate questions about where's the Bill of Rights? Is it coming? Well, I won't support it if it has it. So that's in there too. Of course, we do eventually get ratified, slowly but surely. Do you know the first state to ratify? Delaware. Delaware is the first state. (laughs) That's why it's called the first state. They ratify in December, so they do it pretty quick. Yeah. My favorite is New York, which eventually ratifies, but only after they send a list of 33 alterations that they demand to be made to the document. So if you understand New York politics, that is not at all surprising. The Constitution is duly ratified a year later. So September of the next year, it's been ratified. A new government will begin in March of 1789. What I love is there are still states ratifying at this point. There, Yeah, in fact, the Constitution specifies that it will be ratified after 10 states have ratified it. So that's when we... So they were smart enough to know that it was going to be a process. So once we have this new Constitution duly ratified, a year after that, September of 1789, we get 12 articles of amendment submitted. So September is a really important time in our constitutional history. Three years in a row, we have it signed, then ratified, and then amended. These 12 articles of amendment are drafted primarily by Madison, though very much inspired by Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. The third through 12th articles become the Bill of Rights. A lot of people don't realize that. They think it's the first 10, but it's not. It's articles Mm -hmm. three and 12. Article two 
became the 27th Amendment in 1992. Do you know what that is? Do you know? I do. Of course I know. You can share with our listeners. <laughs> Uh, the 27th Amendment to the Constitution. And this, you can see this being a big deal. It is that if Congress raises its pay, the raise doesn't take effect until a new Congress has been seated. So basically, they can't give themselves a raise, right? That's not going to take effect until we've had an election. So that if people don't like the fact that Congress has given themselves a raise, they can kick out their Congress. It's sort of fascinating that that was the second article that was proposed in this list in 1789. You can see it being important, though. They want to make sure that they're not inflating their own bank accounts at the expense of the people. And technically, the very first article is still pending. Yes. So we still have that floating around, oh, which technically just establishes the legislative branch of the federal government. Yeah, there's no time limit on adding amendments to the Constitution. There have been various amendments to the Constitution that have had time limits on them, but that's not constitutional. Technically, the 27th Amendment of the Constitution was actually introduced in 1789, does not become a part of the Constitution until 1992, which is, you know, 200 years. So technically, there's no time limit on them. As we mentioned earlier, Rhode Island is a special little snowflake, and they ratify the Constitution last of the original 13 states. And there we are. As we get to 1789, we now have a constitution. We have 13 states quickly followed by Vermont, which will enter the Union just after Rhode Island's, right? Just after. And we have a constitution, a Bill of Rights, and a new government headed by George Washington. And this, to me, is such a fun episode to do and to talk about because, as you were saying earlier, it's still so relevant today. We often, at the end of the episode, talk about somebody's legacy or where you can find it today. Well, the Constitution is a part of our everyday life, very much so, and I think more so as as time goes on and more so as we get further and further from the founding and we continue to grapple with how the world changes and how our country changes and how our government changes. Uh, You can, and I should mention, go and see the Constitution at the National Archive. Not just Constitution, but the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. Those original documents are on display for free to visit at the archives. It's something I think everybody should go and do at some point, see those real documents. And of course, many of the framers who are involved in this event are honored and represented in Washington, D.C. in various places, whether it's the George Mason Memorial, which we highlighted in a previous episode, the Washington Monument to honor George Washington, or if you go to the Capitol Building and see Statuary Hall, many of the men who are represented in Statuary Hall were framers, and you see, I think, legacies to them everywhere in our city. I definitely feel that Madison particularly in the 21st century, has faded a little bit in public mindset. We talk a lot about Washington and Jefferson, and I think he gets overshadowed. Like, where's my James Madison Memorial? Or where's, where's my Madison something? Yeah, he's got the main building of the Library of Congress named after him, and that's kind of it. Like, he very much gets overshadowed. Jefferson gets a lot more play and credit for the Declaration of Independence, and then Madison's like, eh. Kind of like John Adams, who also does not sign the Constitution, but they don't get the recognition, I feel like, that they're due. Yeah, Madison, to me, is definitely the legacy of this Constitution. Despite the fact that he hated being called the father of the Constitution, he is, he's the one who, like we said, sort of did the work, drafted it, came up with the idea, and then was smart enough to know it was going to be amended and changed and compromised, and he was willing to do that to get a document done. And I feel fortunate 
that he did that, that we had somebody who took it seriously enough. The, so normally Becca is the one that drops the movie references, but today I'm going to drop a movie reference. Oh. So it's a very forgettable mid-90s movie called With Honors. It's got Joe Pesci and a cameo by a young Patrick Dempsey. I love it, but no one else does. At any rate, Joe Pesci introduces or interrupts a lecture on government, and he talks about how the genius of the Constitution is that the founders knew the one thing that you need to know to be really great, which is that they didn't know everything. And they left a way to correct their mistakes. They knew they'd make them and they left a way to fix them. And that the genius of the Constitution is it has faith in the ability of ordinary people to govern themselves. And I think that that's really true of the Constitution. It kind of gives us the power to change it and to govern ourselves. They knew that they would be obsolete. You know, the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the Madisons, who were very sort of elite men, knew that they were creating a government that would allow ordinary people to govern themselves. And so I feel like that's the greatest legacy of the Constitution. I love it. That's beautifully put. Thank you. And thank you to Joe Pesci. So this has been our episode of Tour Guide Tell, uh, talking about the Constitution, celebrating Constitution Day, Constitution Week, really September Constitution Month. You should always hop over and check out our show notes. We'll have some links to some really good resources that dig into the constitutional scholarly side of things, as well as a little bit about how to visit the Constitution if you come to Washington, D.C. If you are enjoying our podcast, be sure to subscribe, write a review. We love reviews. Don't forget to connect with us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook at Tour Guide Tell All, and on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell. You can also email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback questions, ideas for future episodes. Yes. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C., Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.